Good morning, and welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. We're your hosts. I'm Erica. And I'm Abby. And today I'm going to be telling you my Therese Richardson story. Today I am drinking a hot black coffee, that maple pecan coffee that I told you guys about previously. So good. And I am drinking tangerine tea with a melted honey lemon cough drop in it because I'm still getting over a cold. Might have been for me. It was definitely from Erica, but that's okay. (laughs) Hey, we got to hang out and see each other for a weekend. It was... My sickness was an additional It was worth it. Yeah. (laughs) She was just leaving me a present to remember her by. Of course. Also, can I share this information? Hopefully I can share this information on the podcast because I'm not going to edit it out. Um... Abby asked me to be in her oh, wedding. Yes, you can share as a that. Bridesmaid. <laughs> All right, I didn't know if it was a secret. It's like, where is this going? <laughs> there are so many things. <laughs> no. Abby asked me to be a bridesmaid, which was very exciting. Mm-hmm. And I said no. She punched me in the face and threw her sick at me and walked out. Yep, that's exactly <laughs> what happened. So super excited for that. It's going to be a good ass time. All right. Oh, yes, it will. All right. So pour yourselves a cup or a glass of whatever you're drinking, and let's dive in. Today, I will be telling you all my Therese Richardson story and just a little note up front. This story does deal with mental illness. And then one other note I just want to throw out there. I ended up getting a lot of information for this story from the Los Angeles Magazine. Um, An article was done by a Mike Kessler. He really did a great job investigating Mitrice's story. He interviewed family members, um, officers, other people in the story. He obtained documents and information that um, I pulled a little bit from, but it's a very long article, so I definitely do not have all the information. Obviously, we'll have the link in our show notes, and I recommend going and reading that. Okay, so our story is obviously about Mitrice. Um, It occurred in 2009 when Mitrice was 24 years old. She had recently graduated from Cal State, um, and this was the year prior, 2008. But on September 16, 2009, she had left early from her job. She was working at a freight company in Santa Fe Springs in California. Later on that evening, she ended up going to a restaurant called Jeffrey's. It was in Malibu. And she bought a $65 Kobe steak in a Ocean Breeze cocktail. So she ended up with a bill that was $89. When she got to the restaurant, before she even went in, when she went up to the valet, she was kind of acting strangely. And when she got into the restaurant, servers that were there that night said she was acting strange as well. They thought she was acting strange, but not, you know, unmanageably, not like aggressive. So they're like cautious, but just kind of like, okay, she's being a little weird, but whatever. 
At some point, she actually got up from her table and went and sat with a larger party of, I think, seven people and was talking to them about astrology. At some point, she said she was from a different planet. So definitely some weird things going on. I'm kind of surprised, which I guess it depends on how weird she was acting, but I'm kind of surprised that they let her order alcohol because a lot of times like restaurants will deny like serving alcohol to people who appear to be under the influence or of either drugs or alcohol. And so I don't know she's just not acting that weird or did they just think that like, was she acting just out of the normal, not necessarily kind of. Yeah. Kind of control herself. That's a good point. Um, I'm not sure. I'm guessing she probably got in there, ordered a drink, and at that point, maybe it wasn't strange enough that, I'm guessing as the night progressed, it got more alarming. Okay, that makes sense. At some point, the group left, and when the waiter, waitress, I'm not sure, when they brought my trees, her bill, um, she had mentioned something like the other party should have paid my bill. And they're like, um, no, they didn't. She's like, well, I can't pay for it. And so one thing after another happened and the cops end up getting called. When the cops show up, they're, you know, speaking to the wait staff, speaking to my trees, trying to figure out what's happening. And they go out and end up looking in her car. Um, they find her cell phone, her money, wallet, um, They see that her driver's license is in there, some partially finished bottles of booze and marijuana scraps. I'll be honest, I don't know what constitutes a marijuana scrap, but some type of small remnants of marijuana. They do a field sobriety test and they do determine that she's basically sober. They don't think she's extremely under the influence to a point where she would be arrested for like public intoxication. When they're asking why she was out that night at Jeffrey's, she said something about how she was drawn by the lights, but they weren't really getting solid answers out of her. At one point, I guess employees had said they considered just paying her bill so that she wouldn't necessarily get arrested, but they were scared to let her drive off because of how she was acting. And so the manager decided to press charges against her basically for her own safety. So they pick her up and they impound her car. And somehow, I couldn't really find details on this. Somehow it gets, the information gets back to her mother. Um, She didn't live with her mom. She lived with her grandmother, but her mom finds out. Her mom's name is Latisse. And um, she finds out about the arrest and she calls the station and she's talking to a deputy there. And He says, we're going to hold her overnight. Um, And the mom's like, okay, well, I'll be there to pick her up in the morning. She had a kid. I think it was my Teresa's kid staying with her. So she was like, I'm not going to wake the kid up and put the kid through this. I'll be there in the morning. Another just tidbit I wanted to mention that law enforcement at the time in, in this station in particular, and it was a sheriff's station, they... If they believed that she was mentally unstable, Maitrese, they could have detained her and sent her to a facility for a 72-hour psychological evaluation. So as all this is going on, they, you know, as sheriffs do, they have a lot of paperwork when these things happen. 
for whatever reason, in their paperwork, they don't put anything in it about her acting strange. So what do they put it in then? I think they... Because that seems kind of like a vital part of this. Right. They're just talking... All she's like charged with and all it says is defrauding an innkeeper, basically not paying her bill, and possession of marijuana. Okay, I, I guess they're charging her with just facts, but I feel like the documentation still should have included why they were initially called to the scene. Like, was because they were concerned about her safety because of the way that she was acting, which is then why the um, person at the restaurant decided to call the police and charge her with that. I feel like it should all be together. Right. I don't know. I'm not a cop. Absolutely. Additionally, the deputy who was there overnight, I guess, with Mitrice, wasn't informed from the deputy that talked to Mitrice's mother about the phone call. So they didn't know that Mitrice's mother had said that she was going to pick her up in the morning. So that never happened. Another thing that's kind of unfortunate, not kind of, is unfortunate. Staff at the restaurant later revealed that I guess the sheriff's officials later on tried to get them to sign statements that Mitrice wasn't acting bizarre or strange. What? Yeah. What? Why? You'll understand why in a little bit, but I'm just going to throw that out there and keep that in mind. Pause. Will I understand why, or will you just explain to me their reasoning? Well. Okay. (laughs) Unclear. (laughs) So another thing that happens is while Mitrice is in jail... She is acting strange. Um, She's kind of like pulling at the cells, steel mesh sides, acting kind of odd. Obviously the whole night she is, she's acting strange, right? That's, there's no surprise. Something's going on with her. They say she's not under the influence to the extent where she would be arrested for that. So this is all pointing to what we would assume is some type of mental illness. Something's happening. Okay. So, in this situation, what would we expect? Probably that she should go to a facility and be checked because something's going on. Yeah, she should, at the very, very least, be taken to a hospital to be evaluated for the way that she's acting. Or held overnight to when her mom can pick her up the next day. Yes. That's also an option. Sure. (sighs) Abby... (laughs) So what do they do? Uh, About 12.15 a.m., they release her. No. Yes. They release her at midnight? Yes. The middle of the night? Yes. 12 a.m. Now remember, too, her car is impounded. Yeah. They left her wallet and her cell phone in her car. In her car? And one of their justifications for this is they're like, well, we told her she could voluntarily stay in the lobby until the morning. Uh-huh. Who are these people? Were they police officers or were they, like, faking? <laughs> I Listen, the bar must have been pretty low to get elected there. Okay. So, in the middle of the night, they release this young girl 
out on the streets with no car, no cell phone, no wallet, and their plan is that's it, like goodbye, or or, or are they going to attempt to assist her in some way? Like, hey, we'll give you a ride somewhere, or they're just like, nope. They're basically just like you're on your own. I mean, additionally, she was... She was 40 miles from her home. Um, The closest open business was a mile away, out of view from the station. And there was basically nothing there except for some commercial buildings that were closed. Okay. Yeah, for sure. Their logic makes perfect sense. So. Obviously, I'm using a lot of sarcasm here. (laughs) This case is really reminding me of Paul Tereshuk that we previously covered. It reminds me of his story so much. And if you guys haven't heard that one, um, definitely listen to it. There's a lot of similarities. As you can imagine, this is not really the proper way this probably should have been handled. And we will continue telling you the story after a short ad break. As you can imagine, again, this is not a, a great way for my trees to be released. And... We do have a video from outside the sheriff's station that shows her going out of the door and walking off. She's wearing a shirt, jeans, a hat, and her van sneakers. Um, And that's really all we have until a couple calls in saying they had a prowler in their backyard. And they're pretty sure this was my Therese. And... They're describing her as like um, a tall, slim black woman, very skinny. And it was, I can't remember how far it was. I think two and a half miles maybe from the sheriff's station. But they do believe that that was my Therese. And they saw her heading towards, heading east on Cold Canyon Road. And this was leading towards an area near the Santa Monica Mountains near Dark Canyon. And I'll get to that later, but that comes back up later. Obviously, you know, the next morning comes around and Latisse, Maitrice's mom, is figuring out that her daughter was released in the middle of the night. And so she's understandably, you know, freaking out, trying to figure out what to do. She's like, my daughter's missing. Because she's not here. She's not been home. I have no way to get a hold of her. And she's calling the station and talking to a deputy, Kenneth Baumgartner. And she's trying to file a missing persons report. And she was like, can I file one? Like asking how long she can for an adult. Because of course, because... They're saying my Trace is an adult and can just take off if she wants. You know, you have to wait a while. And he basically is like, and these are some quotes. Well, it depends on the circumstances. Normally, I wouldn't recommend doing one this soon. Apparently, at this point in the conversation, he hadn't even known about her arrest or release. So Latisse tells him. And he goes, you know, I guess probably 24 hours would be reasonable. I mean, if there were... I mean, if there would be some mitigating factors, you know, where you would suspect maybe something is not quite right. And then Latisse says, well, yeah, she doesn't know the area. She's never been in your area before. 
And then Baumgartner says, I would probably wait till, you know, early this morning. If she doesn't turn up, you can certainly call. And then Latisse responds with basically saying that she's pretty sure her daughter is highly depressed and in a depressive state. And then Baumgartner is saying, why don't you wait a couple hours and give us some time and call us back in a couple hours, basically. And then maybe we can do something for you. This case makes my head hurt. So I don't feel like he's fully just missing her at the moment. He's at least saying, like, come back today. Yeah. Right. He's not saying come back in two days or whatever. And also, you said he was a deputy, which makes me think that he can't just make that decision on his own. Mm -hmm. So maybe she needs to leave. He needs to talk with some higher ups. But there there needs to still be a severity in this situation because whether or not they want to talk about the fact that she was acting strange or whatever, she was a young girl that was released from jail in the middle of the night, which no one should be released from anywhere in the middle of the night. Like, that's just... No. She was released in the middle of the night and a place that she's never been with no money, no phone, no car. I... It's very valid to be concerned because she couldn't pay for a ride. So did she pick up a ride with a hit like as a hitchhiker? Because that's concerning. That's never a safe situation. Did she get lost somewhere that she was going, or did something happen while she was out walking around? I, like, there's all these different things to be concerned about in this situation, and the police department's just like, not my problem. Once she walked through the door on her way out. Absolutely. I mean, at the very least, you would think they would feel some kind of urgency to the situation. And I'll be honest, for me, it feels that they were kind of trying to see if they could put their ducks in a row first. Because he didn't know about the situation during this phone call. So he probably wanted to check with others so that they could get on top of whatever it was. And maybe that's me being pessimistic, but that's what I took away from it personally. Now, eventually, um, six and a half hours later, they issue a be on the lookout. And two days after her release, they conduct their first search. They have dogs, scent dogs, during their search. And they started from that house where the people called in and said, we think we saw her. And they do pick up a scent for Mitrice's shoes, apparently, because they saw some tracks. But they lost it, and then the officers decided, you know, I mentioned Dark Canyon earlier, they decided not to hike in there and look. Why? Unclear. This is painful. Like, absolutely painful to listen to. I mean, we talk about a lot of painful episodes, but it it genuinely just pains me when I'm pretty sure I know where this is going, and any sort of urgency or somebody willing to do their job would have like fully do their job could have changed the outcome yeah. of probably where this is going. Right. Absolutely. And you know, the thing is, yeah, it's just disappointing. And I just feel for her family so much. So at some point, and I'm not a hundred percent clear on the timeline at some point, LAPD gets involved and they start doing their job. And they start looking for my trees. Um, from what I could tell, they did a lot of searching. Says, I saw 
quotes that they searched for months. Um, however, they really couldn't find anything. They started to look into evidence with her life, figuring out what was going on. Um, they find out that Maitreese did have bipolar disorder. Um, from looking at her diaries and some text messages, they see that she may have been awake for as many as five nights prior to that last night she was seen. And it seemed like she was in the middle of some type of mental breakdown. Obviously, her family was upset and they were saying she should have been on some type of mental household, obviously. <laughs> and, you know, at this point, they're just kind of stuck with nothing. Nothing happens until August 9th, 2010, when state park rangers are in Dirt Canyon in a remote park and they come across a mummified human skeleton. The skull and spine were detached and it was a few miles away from the siding at that person's house. It was an area that they'd actually been investigating for a while. I guess a year prior, I think, they had busted it because it was a marijuana farm that was run by the Mexican cartel. And they'd actually gone back out there to make sure it wasn't being reused. It was this area that was really remote. Um, nobody ever really went down there. There was no official footpaths. It wasn't really a hiking area. And so, again, very remote. And I guess there was some type of under, I don't, they said there was some type of known porn photography or some studio or something going on back there. I don't know. It's kind of weird. But anyway, they found her remains. And so let's talk about how these kind of crime scenes usually happen right? So typically you would call in officials and like the coroner comes in and they assess the area. So the coroner was like, don't move the body. Let me come in and examine it. They didn't listen and move the body. And so for whatever reason, they do this and they just basically say they don't think it's a homicide and they don't have a cause of death. Zero part of me is shocked that they didn't listen to the coroner, first off. A hundred percent of me is pissed that they didn't listen to the coroner. Mm-hmm. Please continue. That's all I got at the moment. I don't know that I could form another sentence for you at the moment. Obviously, the family doesn't believe this. And something else that is just another point to the fact that they handled this so poorly. Later on, a few months, handful of months later... Mitrice's mom goes to this spot to put flowers down as like a memorial and finds one of her daughter's finger bones still there. I. So when they were like going through the body, like parts and doing any sort of examination of the body, they didn't think to, to be like, oh, wait, she only has nine fingers. When she was alive, she had ten. We should question this. I guess not. And, like, clearly they didn't do a very good job canvassing that area. No, it, and it's literally, it's ten fingers. Like, if it was an ear bone, I'd be like, yeah, sure, fine. Because there's, like, a thousand of those or whatever. But, like, you have ten fingers. 
So did she turn it in at least? I assume. <laughs> I assume so. Because that's. I mean, I don't. That's probably how they figured out for sure that it was a finger bone. Right. Okay. I don't know much else about that. Um, so what the stuff I have left to talk about are some things that I pulled from um, that gentleman's investigation that's in his article, um, kind of in response to some of the sketchy things that happen, additional sketchy things that happen. So the first one is just kind of an annoying defense that the sheriff's department had about releasing her that night basically they say that they had no legal justification to deprive her of her freedom that's quotes from them um sure i guess you can say that but let's think bigger picture here especially how it ended up um again let's talk about the fact that they just never came up with a manner of death and just said they have no evidence of foul play i don't know how you can just say that in this situation so her family certainly thinks there's some type of cover-up i don't know the extent of it they did in 2011 have some type of lawsuit against the county and received well reached a settlement with them that was nine hundred thousand dollars but a few other things that came up in, I think it was Mike. Yes, Mike Mike Kessler's investigation. Um, I guess three months after all this happened, my Teresa's family was allowed to view that footage that had uh, my Teresa leaving the sheriff's department. And she said that her daughter appeared agitated and distressed because they saw the footage of her inside as well she was clearly agitated and distressed and that it clearly to them looks like the video had been edited because there is this moment that my is holding a piece of paper and she's holding it and then it cuts basically and all of a sudden the paper is like on the floor crumpled and they're like you don't see that happen in the tape that's concerning yes and it's also like terrible right when the people that you would call to help you investigate that are the ones that are giving you the crappy stuff right like you can't call the police on the police right especially because it sounds like the whole department or at least a chunk of the department would be in on whatever's occurring Mm -hmm. in this situation whether or not there's a full-blown cover-up on like her entire death I don't know if that that exists, but I could see there absolutely being a cover up on them covering their asses and the fact that they didn't protect her that evening. Yeah, agreed. Another detail that came up about two minutes after my Therese is seen exiting the station, another deputy goes out an adjacent door and the I guess the department wouldn't reveal the name of the deputy and the family was kind of uncomfortable about it and they think it's suspicious they just basically wanted to know if he was involved if he talked to her they say he could have abducted her or offered her a ride to the impound lot um they're just curious and mike said a confidential source provided him the name of the deputy who was transferred less than six months after my family viewed the footage which is just kind of interesting and Mike called that guy, the deputy, and 
the deputy just said, quote, unfortunately for you, dude, I wasn't there, end quote. Helpful. So just interesting. Really, like I said, there's a lot more information in that article. If you guys want to go read it, I recommend you do. I didn't want to pull a ton because this was already going to be a longer episode. But a little bit of, you know, on a happier note, a new sheriff took office in 2019, Alex Villanueva. I'm sorry if I'm not saying that right. And he actually met with my Teresa's family and friends And he changed some procedures because of this situation. And he said, there's no waiting for taking missing person reports for adults. And he says that he makes sure he makes sure that people have their cell phones and personal property returned to them before they're released from jail. So he has some basic decency. Yeah, I guess. Okay, cool. It it just feels like, something basic right or she should have at least they should have been like do you have somebody you want us to call or like there should have been something else done further with for her and this is 10 years after the situation happened with her that they implemented this which is outrageous but you know good for this new sheriff to do something i guess but yeah better now than never right but Still, it's something that should have been implemented before 2009. And especially after this case took place, should have been implemented a lot sooner than 10 years. Right. Yeah, and I couldn't find really recent updates. In 2022, I know there was still like a $20,000 reward with information leading to what happened to my Therese. Um, So I'm sure there's probably an update somewhere. I hadn't seen one, but... That's all I have on this. I definitely recommend looking into it. I know her family is looking for justice. As always, thank you all for listening, and we appreciate your support. Thanks to listening to this week's episode of Crime Over Coffee. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast, where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. All of our sources can be found in the show notes for each episode. If you would like, you can support us by going to anchor.fm slash crimeovercoffee. You can also support us by recommending us to friends and family, giving us a good review on Apple Podcasts, or subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.